If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, we're moving verse by verse through this incredible story, uh, the story of, of the early church here recorded for us in the book of Acts. And the title for the morning sermon is Upside Down or Right Side Up. Upside Down or Right Side Up. I think you'll get the gist of that as we read our text this morning. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Here's what Luke writes. He says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, and as, he, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have become here, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Dear God, we're grateful this morning to read your word and to be encouraged by the, by the, uh, the courage and the tenacity and the, um, the otherworldly uh, bravery that we see continued throughout the book of Acts in Paul, Silas, Timothy, uh, earlier Barnabas, so many of the apostles that, that laid it all in the line for the sake of Christ. And I pray that we would be mindful of our duty as Christians and Christ followers, that we would be evangelistic with all of our being, and that we'd be ready to go from place to place and even to death if needed in order to testify of the grace and the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you'd be glorified in our time together as we examine this text, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, a story is told about a certain community of people who lived on a dangerous stretch of the seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred the people got together and decided to build a rescue mission. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, and so they did. Their job was to man their boat and to search for survivors in case of a shipwreck and to bring their survivor into the mission and to help save their life. It was a great success. And the rescue mission became famous and it grew. A new building was built and it was beautifully furnished and decorated. 
And with all of its beauty, it became more like a social club. And as a result, some of the members began to lose interest in the rescue mission. A shipwreck occurred. There were many survivors brought into this beautiful building, and they were muddy and bleeding. And the mud and the blood was getting all on their beautiful plush carpet. Some of the people complained. At their next meeting, there was a split in the membership. They began to see that life-saving operation was a hindrance to the social life of the mission. Those who disagreed left and built a mission further down the coast. As the years went by, history continued to repeat itself. And today, so the story goes, that the seacoast has a number of social clubs dotting that dangerous shore. But no one in the area really seems to be concerned with the original rescue mission, the operation of saving souls. Well, sadly, that illustration could be uh, an analogy to what we see in many areas with churches. That there's areas where churches have been planted and churches have grown in their evangelistic fervor to win the lost and to preach the word and call people to repentance. And as some churches have grown, they've lost focus of their mission and they've had splits and built other churches, some churches more of a social club or a place to get together with your friends and to enjoy the nice things that God's provided where you have other churches that are on the cutting edge of what does it mean for us to live zealously in this life to win souls to Christ. And such is the case of what's going on in the book of Acts. Not that necessarily there's big churches with plush carpet, but there's this idea of just setting a fire throughout the area of, of, um, of, of, of Eurasia, of um, ancient Asia, and then moving into Europe that we're seeing now that Paul, when he came to Philippi, our last chapter together in chapter 16, is now setting a foothold in the continent of Europe. And the problem is when the church loses the vision of preaching the gospel and evangelizing the lost, then the church is in big trouble. And we must keep the rescue mission going. I mean, that's our job. And sometimes it may seem hard and the converts may seem few, and sometimes it may seem useless and maybe it even feels like at times no one wants to listen. And sometimes it may be that our message is somehow appears to be outdated for a modern world full of progressives who have moved on. But I am here to tell you that our message never grows old and our message never expires and our message will never die out. And I think the hymn, I love to tell the story, says it best. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story, twill be my theme and glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I pray that that hymn would never grow old in your heart. I pray that our church would never split because somehow there's too much of an evangelistic or mission-minded fervor for some and others want to kind of sit back and relax. And really, the passage that we're looking at this morning is talking about how we want to keep our cutting edge. And our cutting edge is about, about the world is being turned upside down or, as the title says, we're here to turn the world right side up. You see, verse 6 says that the missionaries, at this point, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, have turned the world upside down. 
But that's from the unbeliever's perspective. The unbelieving Jews and Gentiles liked things just as they were, filled with legalism and pride, full of lusts and materialism, full of money and power. But from God's perspective, the world didn't need to be turned upside down, but it needed to be turned right side up. And our job is to be faithful to proclaim the truth. Our job is to preach the gospel to all nations, starting at home. Our job is to lift high the name of Jesus, and he will, in his time and in his way, make all things new. He will set things right again, and when he returns, he will make all things new. And only then will everything be right side up again. And so this morning, I'm going to give you three headings out of our passage that will help us better understand when Paul and the other missionaries brought the gospel to Thessalonica, what happened. And so we're going to look at number one, how to establish a habit of being in strategic places. Number two, expounding the scriptures to people in your life. And then number three, expect various responses from your listeners. We'll see how all three of these headings take root here in our text this morning. So let's start with number one, establish a habit of being in strategic places. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says the journey. The journey there in verse one. And when they had passed, so they're on a journey through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Let's just pause right there and talk a little bit about this journey. You remember from last time together in Philippians, uh, they're in Philippi in Acts 16, where the Philippian uh, lady Lydia came to Christ, where the Philippian jailer came to Christ, and now it's time for them to move on, and so they're going to go to Thessalonica, which was about 100 miles away. They traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia at approximately 30-mile intervals along the way. And most likely, they only stopped at those two Greek cities to rest at night after a long day's journey. In the second century before Christ, the Romans built a highway called the Via Ignatia. This famous road stretched from Dirichim, which is now Duras, on the Adriatic Sea, east to Byzantinum, which is now uh, Istanbul, used to be Constantinople. If you look on a map, it's this broad road that goes east-west all across that area near the Black Sea. And this road stretched the distance of almost 700 miles. And like other major Roman roads, it was about 18 feet wide. It was paved with many stone slabs and covered with a hard layer of sand. This well-known road carried Roman troops to battle, taxes to the capital city, and merchandise everywhere. And now it's carrying the gospel into the heart of Greece. I think what's interesting about their travel along that road is also, if you remember, Paul in the previous section was beaten with rods. He had stayed in prison overnight. And at night, at midnight, remember, they were singing and, uh, and they were uh, praying to God and God uh, brought a jailbreak. And the next day, they saw the, the uh, throughout, throughout the night, they saw the Philippian jailer come to Christ, his family come to Christ, and they were baptized. But shortly later, it could have been within a day or two, they leave. And now here is Paul walking nearly 100 miles in three days. I believe it was Emerson who wrote, nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. Sir Edward Appleton, the Scottish physicist and Nobel Prize winner, said, I rate enthusiasm even above professional skill. 
And we certainly see that's what Paul has. He has some grit, doesn't he? He has some enthusiasm, and it has carried him beyond his own physical limitations to accomplish what God had set before him. Paul had the throbbing, compelling, positive drive that can't be silenced until it is satisfied. And I just read to my kids this week as we're reading through 1 Corinthians around the breakfast table, we read chapter 9 this week, verse 16, where Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And that's what kept him going. He kept going because he loved Christ and he loved to serve Christ and he was compelled by Christ to preach the gospel with his life and with his death. And it was the love of Christ that compelled Paul to travel like this just days after an imprisonment, a hundred miles in three days to preach the gospel to the next city that God had appointed to him so that he could help turn the world right side up. The end of verse one says, your next blank, the destination so that's the journey, 100 miles, and then he came to Thessalonica. So Acts 16.40 says, notice at the end of the previous chapter, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had uh, seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I just wanted to point out here that Luke uses the third person plural, they departed, which gives indication that Luke stayed in Philippi for a little bit longer. He likely stayed in Philippi to help develop the new church there. And so now those that are going out, it's gonna be Paul and Silas and Timothy. It looks like Luke has stayed behind. And where, where are they going? They're going here, verse one, to Thessalonica. It's the capital and the most important city of Macedonia having an estimated population of around 200,000 people. It's a little bit smaller than the size of Santa Clarita. It, is likely been, it was likely founded by Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And in Paul's day, Thessalonica was a major port and an important commercial center. Today, the city still exists. It's called Thessaloniki, and it is a significant city still in Greece. A synagogue provided an excellent point of contact for the gospel, so Paul remained there to preach. And that leads us to our next blank, the strategy in verse 2. They're in Thessalonica where a synagogue was of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so we see the strategy that Paul uses here. Paul was driven by a burning desire to see his fellow Jews saved. I mean, that's what Paul wanted to see. He wanted to see his fellow Jewish people come to Christ. And he, he shares that sentiment in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So he's saying, look, I would rather be accursed and cut off from Christ so that my fellow Jewish brothers could come to saving faith. What incredible love. What incredible evangelistic heart. I would rather die than, than my brothers die before they come to the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the same thing in Romans 10, 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so it's not surprising that Paul continued the same strategy if he would get into a, a new area. And if there was a synagogue there, he would start with the Jews first. He would go into that city, into the synagogue where, where the Jews were and start there first and then also to the Greek. 
And even though Paul's heart, as we see, is to reach the Jews, he had been rebuffed by them time and time again. It was on the first missionary journey where he was on the Isle of Cyprus that he was opposed by the Jewish prophet Bar-Jesus. Leaving there, he went to Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, 45 says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and they were reviling him. And this happened, as you guys know, time and time again throughout that first missionary journey and now even into his second missionary journey. And yet, in spite of all of that, and even the recent persecution in Philippi at the hands of the Gentiles, Paul did not hesitate to courageously enter the synagogue at Thessalonica. And sadly, as we see in this passage, the Jewish opposition once again forced Paul to flee from Thessalonica. In fact, look down at verse 5. We'll get there in a little bit. But it says, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Look down to verse 10, which we'll be in next week. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. You see the repetition here of Paul, go to a new city, go to the best place where you have the greatest strategy to preach the gospel for, for, for God's glory, which was starting in the synagogue, and then he would do what he could as well amongst the Gentiles in that area. Now in the past, as I've read through this story, because I just find Acts 17 an incredible chapter of church history and of missionary uh, of, you know, fodder to read and meditate on. I've always just kind of assumed that Paul was there for three weeks because it says there in verse two that he, as was his custom, he was there on three Sabbath days. And as I had an opportunity to study just a little bit more this week on, on exactly what's going on in this passage, I've, I've kind of had a, a little bit of a change of view there that he could have been there longer than three weeks. And I just want to briefly explain to you why. So this is a quick aside, but if you are a Bible student, maybe you'll appreciate it. Just briefly, let me tell you three reasons why Paul may have been in Thessalonica for more than three weeks there in your outline. Number one, the Philippian church sent money to Paul at least twice during this visit. So while he was there for those three weeks, and I'm suggesting maybe more, the Philippian church sent, sent money to support him at least two times. Philippians 4.15, he writes, and you, Philipp and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So the fact that he's writing to the Philippians uh, about how they were supportive to him while he was in Macedonia, specifically here in Thessalonica, and they gave to him not once but twice just for that, 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 that uh, communication, for that gift to cross that 100-mile stretch on that road uh, might indicate that he was longer than three weeks in Thessalonica. A, a second reason to consider would be Paul supported himself by manual labor. We know that he did this as a, as a tent maker. He talks about it when he writes his epistle to the Thessalonians later, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. And so the fact that Paul was working on projects, probably like tent making, may indicate that considerable time was needed before the aid from Philippi arrived. And then third, number three, most of the converts in Thessalonica were Gentiles steeped in idolatry. So when Paul, 
later writes to the church in Thessalonica. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So when he writes, again, the epistle to the Thessalonians later, he's praising primarily more of the Gentiles who it's expected there in, again, in Greece, there in, in this area of Thessalonica. He's praising them from turning from their pagan idolatry and coming to Christ. And so the fact that there were more Gentile converts, probably, than Jewish converts indicates that he may have been there longer than the three weeks. He was three weeks in the synagogue, but he also likely spent even more time there uh, evangelizing the, the, uh, the Greeks, and it could have been uh, up to three to six months. And so we've seen Paul, again, just establish the habit so kind of back to our sermon, it's just a little bit of an aside, just something to think about if that interests you. But what we're really seeing here is that Paul established a habit of being in strategic places in order to share the gospel. And I wonder what that might look like in your life. I wonder for you, Paul's like going to major cities, major uh, seaports, major areas where he could plug in. He's going specifically to the synagogue. He's going to groups of people. And I wonder in your life, do you find yourself looking for repetitive, strategic opportunities to share the gospel? I mean, it could be something as similar as, as simple as going to the same hairdresser, the same barbershop, the same coffee uh, barista that you talk and pursue, that same neighbor on your street, that you sit close to someone in class, that there's somebody on your ball team, <coughs> excuse me, there's a client that you work with that you're wanting to maybe go outside of, of work and say, hey, why don't we grab dinner? I'd love to take you guys to dinner. Are there ways that you find yourself looking for strategic opportunities to place yourself in opportunities that would, that would aid you in sharing the gospel? Um, I, I think that it's incredible just to think about that. You know, why does it have to be always just missionaries who are thinking strategically about how to share Christ? You know, when we go on mission trips, uh, we're always thinking about like, all right, we're going to be here for a week. We got opportunity to do VBS. We're going to go door to door. We're going to do a special youth service. We're going to do a marriage conference. And we are like actively all week long pursuing life like that. And I just think that we need a little bit more of that in us on a day-to-day -day basis. Don't you? Just a little bit more of like, oh yeah, I've got seven days in front of me between this week and next week. How am I strategizing throughout my week that there will be opportunities through prayer through contacts that I'm making in order that I could be carrying the gospel of Christ in a way that would turn the world upside right. I mean, if we want to, if we read something like this and we're like, man, that's awesome. They're like turning the world upside down. I wish we could be like that. Well, how about you being like that? Right, you know what I'm saying? Don't just be looking up here at me like, well, pastor, that's your job. You know, it's like, no, that's all of us. All of us have an opportunity to think strategically about what road do you need to travel? And what person do you need to pursue? And what opportunities might lie before you? And that maybe you should gird up your loins and that you should get ready with the truth of the gospel to say, you know what, I'm a fired up. I wanna turn the world upside right. You gonna do it with me this week? All right, let's do it. Number two, let's move on. Our second heading is expound the scriptures to people in your life. Oh, dear saints of God. Hang on, because it's about to get really good. This is what it's all about. Paul is doing four things that I believe help turn the world upside right, and I think we have a lot to learn from it. Number one, or A in your outline, Paul was reasoning from the Bible. 
Please notice there that when he's there, as is custom in, uh, in the synagogue, the very end of verse 2 says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I love Paul's approach to evangelism. Really simple, really clear, straightforward. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He did not point to statistics. He didn't try to capitalize on cultural issues. He didn't attract people with entertainment. He simply opened the Bible and reasoned from the scriptures. The word reasoned here means to engage in dialogue. It means to converse. It means to discuss it can even be translated as to argue. And some Christians believe that it is important for us not to offend unbelievers. And so they don't want to mention sin or judgment or hell. They don't want to condemn popular sinful choices of behavior like abortion or homosexuality. But we understand that what God's called us to do is have courage and to reason on any issue from the scripture. That we have an opportunity to take courage and to link that together with proper content from the Bible if we're gonna be used by God to shake up the world. And some evangelistic strategies are filled with courage but have no truth. And some strategies have truth but no tact. And Paul is a master of saying what needs to be said from the scriptures, and then in this scenario, he is willing to dialogue about it with the Jewish people. The word reasoned described more of a discussion than a formal sermon. So I think that we're to do both, right? We're to preach the word, formalize uh, preaching, just like it is throughout the New Testament from the Sermon on the Mount. You could argue all the way back from Deuteronomy with Moses preaching ex expositionally all the way through. But there are times in our life where we need to have dialogue. It's not just enough to preach at somebody and to go on a monologue forever, not giving them an opportunity to respond, stop, ask a question. What do you think about what I'm saying? What do you think about what the Bible says? And I love how he's reasoning. He's getting into a discussion here and Paul often fielded questions from his listeners. And that was the way that he commonly ministered in the synagogues. And later, we see that in Corinth, that he reasoned, right, that was a normal part of his ministry, uh, Acts 18.4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We see the same thing again in Acts 18, verse 9, in Ephesus, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And this reasoning continues in Acts 19, verses 8 and 9. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some came, uh, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. So all I'm saying is Paul's preaching regularly, and he's reasoning regularly. And please note that Paul's reasoning did not focus primarily on logic or philosophy. It didn't originate with biology or botany. He didn't focus on astrology or astrophysics. Paul wanted to reason from the scripture. 
Now, I'm not saying we can't entertain some of those other fields of discipline because I think they all point to God. And we can certainly, that might be a launching point to get into the conversation. But what I'm saying is his real heart here is I need to reason from the scripture because I can talk all day long about biology and about other things. But if I'm not talking about Christ and how he helps bring conviction to a depraved soul, then I'm not bringing uh, the truth that they need to understand in order to repent and then about uh, preaching, uh, obviously, about the resurrection. And so what I'm saying is that Paul here primarily is preaching from the Scripture. We, we must start with a source that is authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. Uh, we must use the Scriptures in our reasoning, which is more than sufficient, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. I hope that when you are in an evangelistic conversation that you're making your case from the Bible and not from your own intellect or your own experience or your own opinions. And it's more than okay to get into a genuine discussion and dialogue as you reason from the scripture. Sometimes it make, make you feel uncomfortable, but we need to be willing to reason. That's what Paul's doing. We also see here, your next blank, that Paul was explaining the scriptures. So he's reasoning from the scripture. He's explaining the scripture. We see that in the first part of verse three, explaining and proving that it was necessary. So I'll just stop with the word explaining. We see here that in addition to reasoning, he's explaining from the scriptures. That word explaining literally means that Paul was opening. He was interpreting. He was revealing. This is one of the words where we get the idea from of expository preaching. He's opening up the Bible and he's teaching it to the listener exactly what it is that the Bible is saying. He's expositing the text. He's explaining the text. A preacher's job is not to entertain and it's not to amuse and it's not to charm his audience. His job is to explain the scriptures and then exhort his listener to respond to what they've just learned. And this is the same word that was used by Jesus on the road to Emmaus when Luke 24, 45 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so we do the explaining and it must be God, the Holy Spirit, who truly opens their eyes so they can see and opens their hearts to receive by faith forgiveness of their sins. And then we also see a third word here. He's, 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 He's now reasoning, he's explaining, and then it says again, verse three, and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And so the next thing that Paul's doing is he's proving the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's proving the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's, it, that's what it is that Paul's focused on. He's gonna preach Christ and him crucified. And so this word proving means to give evidence for. It means to demonstrate. It means to point out. And that's exactly what Paul's doing is he's using the Old Testament scriptures to point to the fact that the Messiah would come, that he would be killed, and that he would be raised from the dead. And Jewish theologians in the century before Christ and during the time of Paul struggled to understand how would this Messiah suffer and die on behalf of his people? And so no doubt Paul likely took them to passages like Isaiah 53, which we know is a beloved 
chapter of the Bible that focuses on Old Testament prophecy by Isaiah 700 years before Christ, where he wrote things like, but he, speaking of the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are like sheep. We've all gone astray, each one of us turning to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's likely that Paul was preaching passages like that from the scripture, proving that this prophecy was talking about the Messiah. And now, just a few years after the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul is saying, hey, that's what Christ did. Psalm 16 shows how the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Of course, Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, for I delivered to you first of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so we see he's regularly interacting with Old Testament passages to point to the fact that Christ would come, the Messiah will fulfill Psalm 22. He would fulfill Isaiah 53. He would fulfill all these messianic prophecies in the person of Christ. And I'm just saying, the only way that you can prove the resurrection today is by looking to God's word. You can't prove that Christ was raised from the dead only by history, though history records for us, even in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 witnesses saw Christ after he was raised from the dead. But the main objective here is to use scripture to prove the resurrection because it's, it's a miraculous event. It's something that can only be believed by faith. It's something that we're never gonna back down on. It's something that is essential to saving faith. And so we wanna look to God's word. You either believe what the Bible says by faith or you don't. And if you believe what the Bible says about the gospel, then you will be saved from your sins. But if you reject what the Bible says about the gospel, then you will perish in hell forever. And so it's essential that we understand how the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ is essential to anyone's salvation. And then we see, fourth here, that Paul was proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming Christ here at the end of verse three. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's now connecting Jesus, the man from Nazareth, an earthly given name to Christ, which is a title for the Messiah, for the anointed one. And so the word here is that he's proclaiming this. This means to make known in public. It, It means to speak out. It means to declare, and Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus fulfilled every messianic prophecy. Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, Isaiah 7, 14. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Jesus was called a Nazarene, Matthew 2, 23. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, John 1, 29. Jesus is the rock that produced living water. John chapter four, verse 10. Jesus is the son of David. Mark 10, 47. Jesus is our high priest forever from the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, 20. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. 
Matthew 21, 42, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus is the lamb taken to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7, Jesus was raised on the third day. Matthew 12, 40, Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, 35, Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12, Jesus is the door of the sheep. John 10, 7. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, 11. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Jesus is the true vine. John 15, 1. And Jesus is the alpha and the omega. Revelation 22, 13. That's how Paul's doing it. He's just preaching time and time again, proving from the scriptures, and I know some of those scriptures hadn't been written yet, but we have the opportunity time and time again to go back to the word, and that's what Paul is. He's relentless about preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He never let up. He never changed course. He never got tired. He never fell away. He preached Christ. He proclaimed Christ. He professed Christ. He pronounced Christ. He declared Christ. He heralded Christ. He trumpeted Christ. He exalted Christ. He loved Christ. He treasured Christ. He adored Christ. He magnified Christ. He rejoiced in Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ. Well, no wonder the world was turned right side up. And please note that those who turn the world right side up do so using the word of God as their lever. The Bible is the fulcrum on which everything is lifted. The Bible is the axle on which the wheel turns. The Bible is the fire that provides the heat. The Bible is the foundation on which we build our lives. The Bible is a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. The Bible is a two-edged sword that cuts. The Bible is the singular, steadfast, and supreme authority in the universe. So make sure that you are hiding God's word in your heart. Make sure that you are meditating on it day and night. Make sure that you are applying it to your own life. Make sure that you are studying it to show yourself approved. And make sure that you are proclaiming its truth to your neighbors, to your classmates, to your coworkers, to your family, and to the world without apology. And only then may we be able to take part in turning the world right side up. You see, to be a part of this plan of God is for you and I to be evangelists. And I know that there's special gifts that are given in the New Testament. And some are called to be apostles and prophets and, 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 and uh, missionaries or, or, or evangelists and pastors and teachers. But I believe that all of us have an opportunity and a responsibility to be heralds of the truth. Only then are we able to really say, you know what? I can't wait this week to get out there and stir something up. And I don't mean in some talk show way, Fox News analyst, though I appreciate much of what is said sometimes. You know, I'm just saying our goal is we're doing it from the book right here. We're doing it from the word of God. Now, I'm not interested on in being on talk shows. I'm interested on in preaching the word of God to people and dialoguing with them in reasonable ways about Christ. And that's what Paul's doing. He's fired up about it. He's continuing to do it. He's given his life for it. And those that are with him can't help but to be infected by this incredible, tenacious desire to make the world different 
and we do so by being a gospel witness. And so we see Paul establishing himself in strategic places. We see him expounding on the scriptures to the people in his life. And then third, we can expect various kinds of responses from our listeners. The first blank here says, some were persuaded. Some were persuaded. Verse four, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Can we just stop there and be encouraged? Some were persuaded. Sometimes we preach and it feels like it just goes out into a black hole and you've been sharing Christ with your neighbor for years and you feel like, well, they'll never come to Christ. And the opportunity sometimes forces us to start to doubt that God's word is at work. And that's part of why I love being a pastor is I see people and hear testimonies of people coming to Christ every week, every month, every year. I see people whose lives was in the gutter and they were lost and I hear their testimonies. I just went to lunch with a guy uh, this week and he told me how lost he was and how radically God saved him, and how he can't wait just to learn more about Scripture. It's a young man. And I was like, man, praise God. Like, that fires me up when I see God is still working. And that's what we see here in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. They wanted to join their team. They, they joined Paul and Silas and a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading ladies. I love that. They were persuaded. That word means they were, uh, it means to, to cause, to come to a particular point of view or course of action. It was God, the Holy Spirit, who regenerated these new believers. It was through the preaching of the gospel that God opened their hearts and brought them to saving faith. And so when Paul writes to the new believers here, he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And so not only did some of the Jews come to Christ, but that verse four says uh, uh, many of the devout Greeks came as well. Remember, Paul said in Romans eleven thirteen, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And there's also a number of leading women. I love how that emphasis is given as well. In the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture, sometimes women were treated second class, second rate. And you know here at our church, we like to exalt all people that God created, male and female, created equal before God in our value and our dignity, that we have different roles and responsibilities at church and at home, but we all have the responsibilities to proclaim Christ, to reason from the scripture, to dig into God's word. And I love how a number of these leading women came to saving faith. The Bible emphasizes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the Thessalonian church is like. It's got believing Jews, believing Gentiles, believing women, all those who would be in Christ. And this church becomes a reproducing church. Two of its members, Aristarchus and Secundus, joined Paul in his evangelistic work in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul also commended all the church members in 1 Thessalonians 1.8 when he said, for not only has the word of the Lord surrounded, excuse me, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need say nothing. 
He's just commending them, just saying, man, when we came and we preached Christ and you guys repented, you guys took it everywhere. There, there's people coming out of Thessalonica who were becoming missionaries. And what a great encouragement this is, that those who would influence the world for Christ must recognize that they cannot do it alone. Evangelizing and then discipling others who in return evangelize and disciple others causes exponential growth and magnifies the gospel's impact on the world. Uh, I still remember my first cousin, who's a missionary in North Africa, was at our house just a few years back. <laughs> we were sitting at the table, and I think it was Nate, my son. He said, hey, tell me a little bit about why you want to be a missionary. And my, my cousin, his name is Mark, said, hey, let me show you. He said, do you have a sheet of paper? And he's like, yeah. And he took a sheet of paper, and he just started to draw. See, I'm one person. I'm just one person who loves Christ. And he, he's an engineer making big money in Austin, Texas. And he and his wife got so convicted about taking the gospel to an unreached people group. They're like, I I'm in the wrong business. And so he's serving now somewhere in North Africa. So he took that sheet of paper and said, I'm just one person. But if I can go over to Dubai where he started and then from there went into Africa, and if I could just, God would just somehow use me to win one soul to Christ, maybe two. Now you've got me and you've got these two people. And if those two people each reach two people, then how many people do you have? And my son's pretty good with math. So he started adding it up and it just kept going and kept going to where we're at the bottom of the page. It's like all these people could come to Christ. It starts with one faithful service. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Just the idea that Paul understood that he couldn't just be all about him. Jesus, it wasn't all about Jesus. He had 12 disciples, right? So Christ understood the concept of discipleship. Paul understood this uh, concept of discipleship to reproduce yourself so that those Converts who come to Christ began reproducing, and that's what's happening in Thessalonica. I love this, this verse that probably shows this as much as any one singular verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we go from Paul to Timothy, and then Timothy says, and trust this, Paul says to Timothy, and trust this to faithful men. So that's one, two, three, who will teach others also. There's number four. So you have four generations represented right there in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And what a, what a mindset, what a strategy. What an exciting thing to realize that, that as we are evangelists for Christ, we see it having an exponential effect all by God's grace and for his glory. That's the exciting part of some were persuaded but as you know, as we've already read, it's not all that's going on is persuasion. There's also your next blank, some began persecuting. Some began persecuting. Let's look at their tactics in verse five. The first thing they did, your next blank, is they formed a mob. So you see their tactics, they formed a mob. Your next blank there. But Jews, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. This was the Jews' custom, the unbelieving Jews, that is. They got mad, and they were jealous, and they were doing whatever they could to disrupt the progress of the gospel. Remember, on Paul's first missionary journey, we, we read about all this opposition that came against him. And Paul, as he continued on in that first missionary journey, at one point shook the dust off of his feet. And Paul and Barnabas went to Iconium after they were in Pisidian Antioch. And then they fled to Lystra, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. And each time, it was always at the hand of jealous Jews who were persecuting Paul and those with him time and time again. 
And it wasn't only the Jews, but the fact that they took some wicked men, verse 5 says, of the rabble, and they formed a mob. And so the Jews wanted to start an insurrection. They wanted to start a public disgrace. They wanted to have a riot. They wanted and pursued violence. And so they formed a mob. And then your next blank says, out of verse 5, they set the city in an uproar. So this is ironic because it's the very thing they accuse the missionaries of doing. They accuse the missionaries of verse 6 of, you guys are upsetting the world. And it's, they're, they're the ones getting wicked men from the rabble to form a mob, to have an uproar. Uh, they, they accuse the missionaries of the very thing that they're doing again. It, it was the Jews who were using this tactic as well against Jesus in his illegal trial back in Mark 14, 55 and 56. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. This is what they tried to do against Daniel, to find something against his character, but they couldn't find anything. This is what's happening today, that Christians would be ridiculed based on our belief in Scripture. We understand Jesus was guilty of no crime. Paul and Silas were guilty of no crime, but it didn't matter. The Jews formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and then they next attacked the house of Jason. They attacked his house. Nothing is known about Jason except that he was probably Jewish. The name Jason was often taken by Jews who had been dispersed outside of Israel. One thing we do know about Jason is that he was not afraid to associate with Paul and Silas and Timothy. He had apparently hosted them at his house and was now being persecuted out of this association. And so the mob attacked Jason. They attacked his house. The missionaries were not there. We're not given a reason why, uh, why they're not there. They could have been out. They could have been hiding in, in the providence of God. Maybe it wasn't in God's will for them to be arrested at this place, at this time. We know God's sovereign over every aspect of our lives. We just know they're not there. And so what did they do next? Their next tactic is they make a lot of accusations. Number two, their accusations. And then your next blank, these men have turned their world upside down. That's what they're accusing them of. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned their world upside down have come here also. And so again, the missionaries were nowhere to be found. And so they did the best thing they could. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers out. No doubt these were some of the new believers there in Thessalonica. And you gotta just realize that coming to Christ costs something. Coming to Christ could put you at risk for persecution. Coming to Christ requires sacrifice. It requires courage. It requires resolve. It's not for sissies. It's not for cowards. It's not for those whose heart is somewhere else. So if you're, if you're looking for a comfortable, rich life, don't come to Christ. When I say rich, I don't necessarily mean you can't have money. I'm just saying if your pursuit is money and your pursuit is comfort and your pursuit is to be popularized by the world. Uh, this is always eating away. It's so many people that I see are on the fringe. They want to appear to be cool, accepted, and appreciated by the world. And the fact is, as Christians, we could just no longer look at that at all. 
You will not be respected. You will not be appreciated. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a daily battle of denial and a willingness to be persecuted even as Christ was. And you say, well, why would I want to do that? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Is it really worth eternity for a few good kicks in this life? That for all eternity you would lose your soul? And so the Jewish leaders brought two charges against the believers. First, they accused them of turning the world upside down. This was a very vague accusation that they could not defend. And what they're really saying is that these men have come here and Jason has received them into his house and we don't like it. We don't like who they are. We don't like what they teach. We detest the fact that they have changed our city and are confronting our worldview. And so we want to punish them and we want them gone. And again, that's what the world is saying of us today. If we're truly standing for Christ, the world doesn't like our biblical view of marriage. The world doesn't like our biblical view of when life begins at conception. The world doesn't like our biblical view of gender, of personhood, of sexuality. The world has rejected Christ and it will reject us too. First Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We see here in Thessalonica as in our world today that the darkness is upset by the light. The accusers meant this in a negative way, but as Christians, we can take it positively. I would say, good, I'm glad the world's upset. Let's uproot the godless thinking and let's expose godless living and let's confront godless politics and let's speak out against the drag queen story hour at the local library. Let's, let's speak out against the LGBTQ plus agenda. We're not afraid to speak out about, hey, you know what? This is what God's word says. We love all people and we want all people to come to Christ. And in order to come to Christ, you have to turn from your worldly pleasures and you have to turn from your sin. And, it, and sin, all sin is disgusting. It's heinous. It, it, it requires the sacrifice of a perfect lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that life that you're living will never satisfy. And it has all kinds of consequences and it ends in eternal damnation. If we really believe that, we would be a little bit more outspoken about saying, hey, this is what the light is. This is what the darkness is. This is because of what God's word says. And that's going to upset the world. They're going to be upset about it. They don't want to hear it. Let, let us say in our day and time that Jesus is the only Savior. Let us preach Christ and him crucified. Let us plead with people to repent of their sins and to be washed under the blood of Christ and to believe in the saving grace of the gospel. Let's do it. Let's stir it up. Let's set the world on fire for the glory of God and for the majesty of his name. I mean, what else are you loving for? Isn't that, isn't that what you signed up for when you got saved? I'm, a, I'm here to burn out for Christ. Forget my business. Forget my ball team. Forget the Dodgers. 
All right, I said it. <laughs> you know, it's like, forget it. It's like, I'm here for Christ. You're here for Christ. Whatever else is aching you, just like, you know what? I have an opportunity this week to be provocative in my conversation. And I'm not asking you again to be Jerry Springer, for those of you who remember that show. All right, I'm talking about let's do it with tact, Let's do it with love, but let's do it with firmness. Let's do it with direct conversations. Life is too short. The country's already sliding in the wrong direction. It's our job to wake up and to evangelize the lost, to pray for our politicians, and to support them wherever we can. Did I tell you the midterms are coming up? All right, B, these men are saying that there is another king. These men are saying that there is another king. That's what the other accusation is. They're upsetting the world. And then these men say there's another king and Jason has received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so this key accusation here carries some judicial weight. The reason is, is because the legality is that if they are convicted of supporting another ruler outside of Caesar, that would be a capital crime. So that's what they're trying to do at this point is to say that these guys have committed treason because they want to follow another king, another sovereign other than Caesar. And so it was for allegedly claiming to be a rival to Caesar, they're saying that, that, that this is who Christ is and these people wanna follow Christ and failure to adhere to and worship Caesar would eventually lead to execution. That's the point they're trying to play at this, at this time. And so what, what are the results of these tactics that are employed, these accusations that are made? Number three, the results of what's going on. Verses eight and nine, your next blank says, the city was disturbed. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed and when, when they had heard these things. that The people were disturbed. The word disturbed means that they were stirred up. They were irritated. They were thrown into confusion. Lies lead to confusion. Violence leads to dissension. Wicked men lead to raucous behavior. And then we see in verse 9, the plan for dismissal was set. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This was basically taking some sort of bail. Their bond was likely to be forfeited if there was any more trouble. Paul and his companions would have no choice but to leave. The, ang the anguish this expulsion calls Paul is reflected in the comments that he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, when he writes, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. I think that's what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. This was Satan hindering them. There are times where Paul was willing to be stoned and he later is executed for his Christian faith. There are times where God moves him on, like when he escaped some of the other uh, situations that we're in. Only God has the divine wisdom and sovereignty of who gets arrested, who gets freed, when you move on, when you stay. But despite all of this here in Thessalonica, the damage had been done. And I mean that in a good way. The gospel had taken hold. 
There was a nucleus of true believers now there in Thessalonica from either the three weeks or three months that Paul spent there. And the stage had been set, as we've already read, about how that that church began to, to propagate the gospel into their sphere of influence in the world. And so Paul makes this known again in 1 Thessalonians 7, 8, about how they sounded forth and that the gospel went out from them and it went forth everywhere. And so Christians who shake up the world as Paul and his companions did, must be courageous. They must proclaim the right message and recognize the importance of exponential growth achieved through discipleship. We must also be prepared to weather the storm of persecution that will truly follow. It was G. Campbell Morgan who wrote this on this passage. It's the quote there on the back of your question sheet. It says this, quote, the measure of our triumph in work for God is always the measure of our travail. No propagative work is done save at a cost. And every genuine triumph of the cross brings after it the travail of some new affliction and of some new sorrow. So we share the travail that makes the kingdom come. And he's just saying, hey, if you wanna be a witness for Christ, there's gonna be travail, but there's also incredible triumph. There's incredible treasure in heaven for those who walk in obedience to God's word. So are you ready to join in the fight to turn the world right side up? Have you believed in Christ who suffered and who has been raised from the dead? Are you willing to pay the price of reasoning with others and explaining and proving Christ and proclaiming the gospel with your dying breath? After we sing our last song, if you are here and you've never repented of your sins and trusted and believed in Christ, we'll have a few people standing right up here by this door. We'd love to talk to you. If God's speaking to your heart at this very moment out of his word and he's saying enough is enough, it's time for you to bow the knee, to repent, to turn from your, from your lost condition and be saved through believing in Christ and his perfect life in his death and his resurrection, that he truly is the way, the truth, and the life. If that's been made clear to you, even from the explaining of the scripture and the expounding of the truth, and God's heart, uh, his, his, his spirit is working in your heart to pull you to him, we want you to respond to that this very morning. If you're here and you're just convicted that you are a backslidden, second-rate, lazy Christian and you just want prayer to say, hey, you know what, would you just pray for me? I, my heart's not where it should be. You get up here week after week, and you rant and rave about Paul did this, and we ought to do that, and I'm just like falling asleep. Well, I'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray that God would awaken your senses to the reality of that we are made for another world. C.S. Lewis, right? We are made to be gospel witnesses for Christ. And so at the end of this uh, last song, we'd love for you to come up. We'd love to talk with you, encourage you any way we can. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of attempting to open your word in a way that would be helpful for all of us to grow in our conviction, to grow in our encouragement, to grow in our, our awe and wonder of the beauty of the testimony of the missionaries there in Thessalonica that turned the world upside down. Lord, we're just a small church in a suburb of a large city, in a very liberal state, in a country that's struggling to know the difference between right and wrong. And I pray that we all would just take to heart our opportunity this week our encouragement this week, if we are encouraged by what we read here in Acts 17, that something about 
this text and the living word of God would cause us to say, you know what, I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be a part of turning the world upside down. I want to help turn the world right side up through the preaching of the gospel, through the conversations that I have, through the way that I live. Forgive me, Lord, for being so sucked up into entertainment, into secondary and tertiary issues that I've forgotten what it's all about. Help me, O oh Lord, to have a greater love for you that I would be compelled to preach Christ with every breath that I take. I pray that as a, as a small church that we would take that to heart, that you would work your word in and through our lives and that we would have many opportunities to rejoice in the salvation of the lost, in the strengthening of the saints, and in the opportunity to stand and suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.